0: Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to go ahead and start, even though I know we're going to have an influx of people coming because the uh, the service ran a little late tonight, so that means the dinner's running a little bit late. So does anyone know what this music is? Can you hear it?
1: There is a hymn
0: that's drawn from it. That's right. We rest on the our shield and our defender. Is one of the lyrics that goes with it. But that's not what the piece is. Finlandia. Yes, good. Do you know who the composer of Finlandia is? Yes, Finlandia. Sibelius. Yes, good. So this is another one of Lewis's favorites, um, and also a favorite Tolkien, um, partially because it's about the great Scandinavian North. Yeah you know, of which he was such a fan. And uh, one of the things that is sort of interesting about this and then that section of Wagner that we listened to a few weeks ago is they're both kind of bombastic. <coughs> and uh, Lewis's personality is kind of bombastic <laughs> as well, so it's probably appropriate. Okay, so. Oh, I guess I have to actually turn it off. I can't just unplug it. All right, so we are going to begin. Let me start us with a word of prayer, and we will jump right in. Let us pray. Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this night and for this chance to gather and a chance to talk about Lewis's Theology of Friendship. Lord, we pray that as we engage this topic, that you would open our ears, that you would open our eyes, that you would open the eyes of our hearts as well, that we might consider how what Lewis has to say, which is drawn from your scriptures, should impact the way that we live this day. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So for those of you uh, who were here, Uh, you will remember that we are in the midst of an exploration of Lewis's theology of friendship. And we talked a little bit about how this particular area is one that is really important right now uh, because we are in the midst of what many sociologists are calling a crisis of friendship. That loneliness uh, has become a public health epidemic. Uh, As we mentioned last week, the UK recently appointed a minister of loneliness. And this whole idea of the fact that humans are losing the capacity to build meaningful friendship and meaningful connectedness is one that should be of great concern. And it's one of those areas where, if the church is able to recover a biblical vision, which I would argue is what Lewis's vision is in this area, Uh, we have the answer to a very deep need in our culture. So I wanted to just start by reviewing briefly uh, a little bit about what we talked about last week. So the first thing is this friendship crisis, that there is an epidemic of loneliness. um, In the most recent surveys of U.S. adults, uh, the modal value for number of close friends decreased over the past 15 years from three to zero. So many, many people report not having even one close friend. The statistics for men and teenage boys are particularly alarming. And we had a handout last week um, about that, that there is a huge need in that area for recovering this biblical vision of friendship. And when we look at Lewis, one of the things that's interesting about him is he is one of the very few people who has developed a coherent Christian philosophy of friendship, philosophy and theology of friendship. And for Lewis, it is rooted, first of all, in Greek philosophy, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, also deeply rooted in what he experienced in his relationship with J.R.R. Tolkien particularly in the first 20 years of that friendship. That friendship had its ups and downs, but particularly in the first two decades of it, uh, it was remarkable the way that God used them in one another's lives. Then we also talked about how Lewis's theology is rooted in mythopoeia, or mythopio, or mythopoeia, or (laughs) whatever you want to call it. Um, That glorious poem that really shows the difference between an atheistic, nihilistic, materialistic worldview that nothing matters, that nothing has value, that there's no such thing really as meaning or purpose, that point of view contrasted with the under the vault of heaven, rich creation world full of wonders waiting to be discovered that reflects the beauty and majesty and glory of God. And one of the aspects of that that is contrasted in the poem is the view of human beings. And I've been picking on Henry Fishburne, and that may be why he's not here tonight, uh, of saying in that nihilistic, atheistic, materialistic worldview, uh, you would say it's nice that Henry Fishburne is a person, but he is essentially no more valuable than a cockroach or a rock or a leaf. Uh, It's just an accident that he happens to be a human being and that when he dies, all of his atoms will rearrange just in the same way the atoms of cockroaches and other things will rearrange, and his life was meaningless meaningless and purposeless. Not very encouraging. Um, that is contrasted with the view that is expressed so beautifully by Tolkien of man being made in the image of God, that man is the summit of creation, man is the only part of creation given the gift of speech, given the gift of wonder, given the gift of imagination, and then most particularly given the gift of being able to be a sub-creator, to be like God in creating things by writing or painting or writing music or creating an idea, all of these things that are not part of any other aspect of the world. this very, very high view of what it means to be a human being, which, in case you haven't noticed, our culture has almost completely lost that, that we are um, relegated to being the human animal, if you will, and that this idea that humans are special in some way is under a major frontal assault from our culture. So that influence of how important human beings are in the kingdom of God and in that creation order really resonated with Lewis. The influence of scripture, last and most importantly, really informs Lewis's entire theology in this area. And we talked a little bit about his book, The Four Loves, and we talked about these four types, four words for love that come from the Greek storge, which is the sort of familial affection, uh, philia, friendship love. Eros, sexual love, and agape, godly love, unconditional love. And what's particularly significant about this typology is that Lewis says that friendship is one of the key loves that is part of being human. He also says it's not necessary. It doesn't have survival value if you're looking from an evolutionary point of view But he says it's one of the things, although it's not necessary for survival, it's one of the things that gives meaning to survival. So that whole aspect, really important. Lewis is really trying to rehabilitate the idea of friendship and trying to bring it back as something that is important. And one of the things that's interesting, if you look in the Christian world, particularly in the 20th century, in the latter half of the 20th century, there's been a huge emphasis on marriage and family. And there's nothing wrong, obviously, with marriage and family. Marriage and family are God-instituted things. But there's more in scripture about friendship and fellowship exponentially (coughs) about those than there is about marriage and family, and yet we have let that whole area of our theology lie fallow. And that is part of the reason that people who are single often feel very lost in the church, Um, It's an area where if we recover a biblical vision, uh, there is a lot that will uh, help us meet the needs of people that are in our culture. So, we're going to dig a little bit deeper. I just have to give a little disclaimer here. I'm really going to try to contain myself um, (laughs) about this, but um, this... Aristotle's section is so wonderful. And one of the things about Greek philosophy, it used to be that when people were considered to be educated, you read the Greek philosophers. You read Aristotle. You read Plato. Um, Just for fun, how many of y'all studied Aristotle or Plato in depth in your schooling? That's what I thought. Yeah. (laughs) And y'all are not alone. Um, The best educated people in our country know nothing of this. And this is why I refer you back to Lewis's introductory essay from our first class on reading old books. But part of the reason that this is so important is that it's deeply connected with our Christian tradition. Because if you go back to the church fathers um, in the third and fourth century, Um, particularly looking at Athanasius and Augustine, two of the great leaders and theologians of the Christian faith, and then coming forward um, a number of centuries to the scholastics movement. All of these great scholars thought that Plato and Aristotle and some of these other philosophers in their pagan state, because they were seeking after truth with a capital T, were able to discern things that were consonant with the kingdom of God being inspired by the pre-incarnate Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a, this is where I have to contain myself because it's really cool, (laughs) but we're just not going to go there. This is not a philosophy class. Um, But I commend to you to study up on that because it is absolutely fascinating. So Aristotle, um, Nicomachean Ethics, one of the great works of antiquity. I don't know how many of you had a chance to try to make your way through that handout it's actually really not that hard to read it's just long Uh, but he makes some really wonderful observations in there that we would do well to note and that were deeply influential for Lewis the first one is this typology of three sorts of friendship and basically what he says, I'm oversimplifying a little bit. He says there are friendships of utility, people that are useful to us for one reason or another. And there are also friendships of pleasure, ones where we feel entertained by the friendship. Um, perhaps this was someone witty, or uh, there's some sort of something that we enjoy about that person. But that those two are perishable, shall we say. And the third type of friendship, which is the one really that we have been made for and that we should aspire to, is this friendship of goodness. And this is where I can't do justice to him and you have to actually read it, but basically what he says is that in this type of friendship, it's based on the character and the goodness in each person calling out the goodness and character in the other person. Not saying that people are totally good ever, but saying that in the friendship, what happens is that you love the good in the other person, and you love that good selflessly, and that encourages that person to bring forth more goodness of that sort. And so what happens is it creates virtue. The friendship itself, the relationship, creates virtue very much in that sub-creator kind of way that Tolkien thought about. There's a good that comes out of that relationship that did not exist when the friends were not in relationship with each other. And this whole idea of virtue is foundational in that. And this this is where all of Aristotelian ethics about politics and the the community and all of that stuff derives from. But it is exactly... It's almost as if Aristotle had read Romans 12 uh, when he is saying this, because it is completely this consonant with that. It's the idea of honoring others above yourself, um, rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, um, all of those things, owing nothing but to love one another. So all of that is really... Um, deeply rooted in Lewis. And remember, Lewis is reading all of this at the age of 13 in the original Greek. And because he was a genius, it stuck with him. And so that became this Aristotelian notion of friendship became kind of the framework for his understanding of friendship. But he did not experience it uh, very much when he was growing up. But when he met Tolkien... All of that changed and Tolkien's relationship with Lewis, particularly in those first two decades, is almost a case study of what this third type of friendship looks like. Uh, maybe an easy way for us to think about it is that if you think about all of your friends that you've had over the course of your life and think about which of those friends, when you spent time with them, were you encouraged to be a better person by being with them where you were inspired out of your time with them versus the ones where maybe you might have had some regrets um, after whatever you did with them, or you might have felt dirty, or you might have not felt much of anything at all. So basically this idea of goodness and the right type of friendship being intimately connected is a really essential part of Lewis's theology. As I said, one of the things going on here is that Lewis, when he converted to Christianity, one of the phrases that he used early on when he was on that journey so he said, when he read George MacDonald, it baptized his imagination. And one of the things that was wonderful about C.S. Lewis is that his imagination and his intellect became thoroughly baptized, if you will, after his conversion, so he looked for how all of these puzzle pieces that had been poured into him in his education, how those fit within this Christian worldview. And if they didn't fit, he pretty much dismissed them. But the ones that did fit, he strengthened so that they could become uh, part of his ethic of what it meant to live a Christian life. So the other thing that's important to this, you might remember from last week, there's that beautiful definition of friendship that's in that, uh, list of quotations from the PowerPoint last week, where Lewis says that really what friendship is about is when you meet another person, you say, what, you two? I thought I was the only one. And that idea of friends standing side by side, gazing on the same truth with a capital T. And for Lewis, the deepest truth is the Christian truth, the kingdom of Jesus. And so when you are side by side with a Christian, looking into the kingdom of God and understanding that you have this eternal bond because of that, that creates a whole type of friendship that is so unbelievably different from what we have in the world. I mean, just think about the uses of friends in our world right now. We have Facebook friends. (laughs) We have that TV show Friends, which uh, a lot of people are still watching on Netflix. There's some people that are stuck in that show, and that's a whole other whole thing. But the, this connection of truth is really, really, really important. And part of the problem for many of us is that our friendships are not about anything. They're just about hanging out. There's not anything wrong with hanging out, that's what Lewis called clubbability in that quotation. But that is not Christian friendship. So we're going to explore that a little bit more. Um, Methopoeia, we already talked about that, and the influence of scripture, so key for Lewis. And because it's so key, I want us to spend a little time thinking about this. Just to give you some context, John 13, 14, 15, 16, that is Jesus' discourse at the Last Supper. Now, presumably, at the Last Supper, the last night of Jesus's life on Earth, with the 12 people to whom he has devoted himself for the past three years of ministry, the things that he has to say might be kind of important. (laughs) So we might want to pay, I'm not saying some scriptures better than others, but we might want to just pay particular attention And were he in the course of that discourse to repeat certain things over and over and over again, it might be worth sitting up and taking notice and thinking, oh, that might be really important. So just notice in here if you see anything repeated. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants for the servant does not know what his master is doing But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. Do you notice anything repeated in there? (laughs) Love and friends. Yes, love, friends, and commandment. There are several things that are so interesting about this. And we've all heard this a million times, and it's gone. (laughs) But I want you to just indulge me for a minute. One of the things about this that is so (laughs) significant is that there are very few places where Jesus commands something. Very, very few to the point that the Maundy Thursday um, feast that we have during Holy Week takes its name from the Mandamus Latin Vulgate translation from this passage, that because it meant command, that was such a big deal that that day ends up being named after it. And it's named after this command to love one another. Now think about who's in this room. Part of the problem, not this room and the the room where Jesus was speaking. You can think about who's in this one, too, if you want. But one of the things that I also would tell you is that most of us imagine that scene totally wrong, because we are the victim of lots of stained glass windows and Renaissance artwork. Mm -hmm. And in stained glass windows and Renaissance artwork, Jesus' disciples all look like they're right next to the geriatric ward. They're wizened. They've got gray hair. Some of them have got canes. And I'm sorry to tell you if that was an important article of your faith, but that is totally <laughs> wrong. Jesus's disciples, according to the best scholarship, were all between the ages of 15 and 30. So they are very young men. Um, Peter is the only one that some scholars think might have been Jesus' age or a little bit older, but all of the rest of them were much younger. The normal age that somebody went to be the disciple of a rabbi was at age 13. We don't think any of Jesus' disciples were that young, but probably the median age for most of them is around 19 or 20. So when you are thinking about this Last Supper and this discourse, Think about the fact that you've got a bunch of 20-something guys sitting around with their mentor who is in his early 30s, and this is what is being shared with them. It's not a bunch of grumpy old men. So uh, there are several things that are so important. The first thing is that commandment word. It's a commandment. Now, part of the reason that's important is you cannot command somebody to have a feeling. I can stand up here and say, I command you to feel sad. But that's not going to really work. Uh, You can't command a feeling. But what you can command is an action or a course of action or a way of seeing something. So Jesus is saying that his followers are to love one another. And then the way that they are to love one another is the way that he loved them. Now, if you look in the Gospels, you will see that Jesus essentially poured his life into these men for three years, utterly selflessly. That's a very high standard. And then as he moves on, um, he says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And we're commanded to do that. That's a command just like the other commands of scripture. But well, we look at that and we're like, oh, he didn't mean that. It's a metaphor. You know, All of these kinds of things where we, we give ourselves permission to not really go there. And the other thing that is so interesting about this is that love, this love among Christian friends in this deep fellowship, look at what he says. This is incredible. Jesus says this. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples not by your evangelism campaign, not by how tall your church steeple is, by the way that you love one another, the world will be drawn to you. And, all right, I'm not gonna go there. Um, one One of the things about this, I just will say this much, one of the things about this is when this happens, when people actually love like that, even our secular culture, will sit up and take notice. Think of what happened after the Mother Emanuel shootings. Think about the way the eyes of the world turned onto this city because those people of faith in Mother Emanuel Church proclaimed the radical love and forgiveness of the gospel of Jesus Christ in the midst of the most awful circumstances, and people were drawn to that. They couldn't help it. And that's what should be happening and I'm not trying to make us feel bad. But with, let's just say we can grow in this area. It is an area that is rich with potentiality. So down at the bottom here, just to sum up, love in this way is a command. We are commanded to love the people that we are called. To, and this is specific to the people that we are called together in the faith with. This is not the people that are in the world. This is your your group of Christian friends. We are commanded to love. The way that Jesus loved self-sacrificially is the standard. The love that we have is to be the sign of the kingdom of God. And this love is friendship. It's really interesting. Jesus doesn't use the word friend hardly ever in the New Testament. here. We have that, and we have some explanation about it, and that really curious part about um, I call you friends because all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. And there are several things that are, we could spend hours just on that, but we're not (laughs) gonna do that. Um, But the, the eternal part of that is important, that this is a bond that lasts forever marriage is only for our time on earth. This bond of fellowship is an eternal bond. Um, Another thing that's really important about it is that it is connected to what Jesus hears from his father, which if you want to look at that through a slightly different lens, is the word of the Lord. Um, So that whole what Jesus is experiencing in this relationship with the Father in the Trinity, which is way above our pay grade to go there. But but the idea of the truth of the kingdom of heaven is right in the middle of these transformational relationships. So that is the standard for what is supposed to be happening. And Lewis took this and then began to express that in his writing. Just in case you're asleep or in a torpor after eating all those tacos, um, I just want to point out something that may be really obvious. This is radical. This is radical. This is not same old everyday, you know, get along, be nice. This is a radical view of friendship and a call to obedience that is radical. So... It goes right back to what we talked about last week in Lewis's essay, The Weight of Glory. And I would commend to you to go back and reread this. Because again, it is all about how important and how precious other people are. If you begin to see each person as an incredible reflection of the image of God, who has beauty and gifts and interesting things about them, even under the distressing disguise of sin, that are waiting for you to start pulling those gifts out, that's very different from being annoyed that that person is taking up space next to you. <laughs> and um, for most of us, the lens that we look at other people through is going right back to Aristotle. Are they useful to us or not? We're going to come back to that. So. This, this whole thing that Lewis says, it's hardly possible to think too much about the glory of your neighbor. Now, this is just like what Aristotle is saying, or Romans 12, if you prefer that. It's all the same truth with a capital T. That radical focus on the other instead of on ourselves is the key to understanding this kind of friendship and also to experiencing joy. The more that we focus on what we want, getting what I want, when I want it, That is where we end up being dissatisfied and bitter. But when we let go of all of that and focus radically on serving others, there's joy in that. And then Lewis talks about how every day, the way that we are treating each person we come in contact with, we are helping them to one or the other eternal destination. Well, that's a pretty sobering thought. Um, So he says, We have to remember, we've never talked to a mere (coughs) mortal. And this is why that mythopoet vision of what it means to be a human being, which is the scriptural vision, is so important, and that we not buy into our culture's view that human beings are just cogs or widgets that are all interchangeable, and there's nothing special about them. And he says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, and remember Lewis is on the spectrum of Anglicanism, where we have low church over here, high church over here, the Anglo-Catholic high church view. Lewis is like over here. So for him to say, next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses, is really strong. Most of us don't treat our neighbor in the same way that we treat receiving the communion elements. So, something to think about. All right. So I want to switch gears a little bit and go into this inner ring essay. And I hope that you had a chance to read that. Um, this is a really terrific essay, and I think it's pretty uh, accessible uh, in terms of uh, being able to get through it. And basically, Lewis was invited to come speak to a group of undergraduates. And the parts of the essay are really quite entertaining. Uh, We're not going to focus on those parts tonight. But uh, he is playing off of, if you wanted to, if this were a musical composition, you would say this is a fantasia on a theme of Aristotle. So it is a fantasia, a supposal, all around this idea of utilitarian friendship, about using people as a means to an end. And most of us would say, well, I would never do that. Uh, but the fact of the matter is we all do that. We all do it all the time. And it's most nakedly visible in high school. Um, if you haven't watched the movie Mean Girls yet, um, I would commend Mean Girls to you as a homework assignment uh, because it is a great example of this whole inner ring principle. And Lewis starts off with a great quotation from Tolstoy. And I I just can't help myself, but I'm going to just a quick commercial. If you have not read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, and you think they're too daunting because the books are too long, and you can't keep straight all the characters with all those eight-syllable names, um, I really want to encourage you to try to take the time to do that. Dostoevsky and Tolstoy are arguably the two great Christian novelists of that century. Some of Tolstoy's theology gets a little wacky, but by and large, it's really good, and it's profound and extremely insightful. Uh, And a lot of them, the storylines, are really great and very relatable. Uh, But he quotes this little part um, from War and Peace, and he's talking about Prince Andrei, and he's talking about and basically what happens is he realizes that even though there's a book that outlines the hierarchy of the Russian system that in fact there's also another system which is actually the system that is more important to know about which is how you use the right people and by being connected to the right people get what you want Uh, this exists in all cultures. Um, there's a, well, I'm not going to go there. There's a whole great thing in the French culture about this. It's called System D. That um, <laughs> If you want to have a good conversation sometime, we'll talk about that. But the, the whole point here is that this inner ring is like this, this thing that's glowing in the distance that you want. Because if you get in that inner ring, then you will be one of the important people. And you will be able to make all those little people on the outside of the ring jealous of how much cooler you are than they are. Um, That's not exactly the way Lewis phrases it, but, um, but that's the basic idea. And he talks about the lore of the caucus, the desire to be popular and not to be an outsider. Now, I think all of us, if we're honest, if I said raise your hand if you want to be an outsider, um, no one would raise his or her hand. We don't want to be outsiders, but we tend to think that the only choice is to either be an outsider or to be working like a little beaver all the time, trying to get to that inner ring. But the problem with the inner ring is you never get there. Because as soon as you get in the inner ring, you realize there's another inner (laughs) ring. And then you get in that inner ring, and then you realize there's another inner ring. And what happens is you are in this constant living for tomorrow, living for someday. I'll get there, and then I'll have a life. Um, And you use up your whole life trying to get to this place that doesn't even exist. So Lewis uh, talks all about this in here, and he does uh, a really terrific job of it, and he has this great section in here about whether or not you are a scoundrel, uh, which I just love that word. Um, and you know, it takes a lot of guts to be in front of an audience that you've never <laughs> spoken to and say, you know, to what degree are you already scoundrels out there? So, and that's where this quotation comes from. I have no right to make assumptions about the degree degree to which any of you may already be compromised. I must not assume that you have ever first neglected and finally shaken off friends whom you really loved and who might have lasted you a lifetime in order to court the friendship of those who appear to you more important, more esoteric. And this is what he means by being a scoundrel. And he says, I must not ask whether you have derived actual pleasure from the loneliness and humiliation of the outsiders after you, you yourself were in, whether you have talked to fellow members of the ring and the presence of outsiders simply in order that the outsiders might envy, whether the means whereby in your days of probation you (coughs) propitiated the inner ring, were always wholly admirable. I will only ask one question, and it is, of course, a rhetorical question which expects no answer. In the whole of your life, as you now remember it, has the desire to be on the right side of that invisible line, i.e., within the inner ring, ever prompted you to any act or word on which in the cold, small hours of a wakeful night you can look back with satisfaction. And basically what he's saying is that the desire to be in the inner ring is one of the most pernicious and dangerous things that can happen because it turns you into that little beaver constantly working for what you want and other people are there as obstacles to be gotten past or to be dominated, or to be looked down upon, rather than to be loved, valued, encouraged, and their gifts drawn out of them. So he makes a really big deal about this. Um, He says, the prophecy I make is this. To nine out of 10 of you, the choice which could lead to scoundrelism, that's not really a word, but (laughs) I like it, "Um, lead to scoundrelism will come, when it does come, in no very dramatic colors. Obviously bad men, obviously threatening or bribing, will almost certainly not appear. Over a drink or a cup of coffee, disguised as triviality and sandwiched between two jokes, from the lips of a man or a woman whom you have recently been getting to know rather better and whom you hope to know better still, just at that moment when you are most anxious not to appear crude or naive or a prig, the hint will come. It will be the hint of something which the public, the ignorant, romantic public would never understand. Something which even the outsiders in your own profession are apt to make a fuss about. But something, says your new friend, which we, and at the word we, you try not to blush for mere pleasure, something we always do. And what he's talking about here is that slippery slope And you will be drawn in if you are drawn in, not by desire for gain or ease, but simply because at that moment when the cup was so near your lips, you cannot bear to be thrust back again into the cold outer world. It would be so terrible to see the other man's face, that genial, confidential, delightfully sophisticated face, turn suddenly cold and contemptuous to know that you had been tried for the inner ring and rejected. And then, if you are drawn in, next week it will be something a little further from the rules. And next year, something further still. But all in the jolliest, friendliest spirit. It may end in a crash, a scandal, and penal servitude. It may end in millions, a peerage, and giving the prizes at your old school. But you will be a scoundrel. That is my first reason, reason to avoid this. Of all the passions, the passion for the inner ring is most skillful in making a man who is not yet a very bad man do very bad things. My second reason is this. The torture allotted to the deniads in the classical underworld, that of attempting to fill sieves with water, is the symbol not of one vice, but of all vices. It is the very mark of a perverse desire that it seeks what is not to be had. Let's say that again. It is the very mark of a perverse desire that it seeks what is not to be had. The desire to be inside the invisible line illustrates this rule. As long as you are governed by that desire, you will never get what you want. You're trying to peel an onion. If you succeed, there will be nothing left. Until you conquer the fear of being an outsider, an outsider you will remain. Once the first novelty is worn off, the members of this circle will be no more interesting than your old friends. Why should they be? You were not looking for virtue or kindness or loyalty or humor or learning or wit or any of those things that can really be enjoyed. You merely wanted to be in, and that is a pleasure that cannot last. As soon as your new associates have been scaled to you by custom, you will be looking for another ring. The rainbow's end will still be ahead of you. The old ring will now be only the drab background for your endeavor to enter the new one. So the quest of the inner ring will break your hearts unless you break it. But if you break it, a surprising result will follow. If in your spare time you consort simply with the people you like, you will again find that you have come unawares to a real inside that you are indeed snug and safe at the center of something, which seen from without would look exactly like an inner ring. But the difference is the secrecy is accidental, and its exclusiveness a byproduct. And no one was led thither by the lure of the esoteric, for it is only four or five people who like one another meeting to do things they like. This is friendship. Aristotle placed it among the virtues. It causes perhaps half of all the happiness in the world and no inner ring can ever have it. Now, obviously, there's so much to talk about in that that there's no way we can do it. But I would just commend to you to spend some time thinking about that because we are so locked into this idea of the inner ring and we don't even know it. We think it's healthy. We think it's ambition and getting ahead and doing things to maximize our utility. But that whole myth of self-actualization uh, is just that. It's a myth, and it is not a road that leads to anything other than despair. So, bravo for Lewis for uh, saying all this to a bunch of college students. Um, is very good advice. I don't know how many of them actually took it, uh, but it is, it is very good advice. And As you can see, he brings it all back around to Aristotle at the end, this idea of goodness, and how do you bring out the goodness that you find in others? So I'm going to shift gears again. We're jumping around a lot tonight because I could literally spend hours on each one of these slides. But this is from the the handout that we had last week called The Power of Conversation. Um, I commend that handout to you. Uh, because it's very insightful. And conversation is to friendship as water is to the growth of a plant. You can't have friendship without conversation. You can stand side by side gazing at the same truth, but you have to be talking to each other about that truth and what it is that you think and feel about that truth. So... One of the things here that the author of the article said is that face-to-face conversations are hugely important. Now, I don't have to regale you with all the stories about how face-to-face conversation is disappearing from our culture at a really alarming rate. I cannot tell you when I was working at Portageau how many students would come to see me and say, I don't know how to have a friend. I don't know how to talk to someone. It terrifies me to have to talk to someone. I can text them, but to actually have to talk to them is really frightening. How do I overcome that? I mean, it really is mind-boggling. For those of us who are older, it seems so stupid. But the fact of the matter is they're trapped. They are trapped in this world of technology and they do not know how to get out of it. And Lewis talks about the fact that conversation is so important because it sparks transformation. And the whole idea of these friendships that are biblical friendships that are in this mode that's rooted in Aristotle is that we call forth good out of one another that it's transformative, that you become a better person because of the influence of your friend. And you cause your friend to be a better person because of your influence in his or her life. And there's this beautiful quotation from Lewis that's the italicized part. And he says, those are the golden sessions when our slippers are on, our feet spread out toward the blaze, and our drinks at our elbows, when the whole world and something beyond the world opens itself to our minds as we talk, and no one has any claim or any responsibility for another, but all are free men and equals if we, as if we had first met an hour ago, while at the same time an affection mellowed by the years enfolds us. Life, natural life, has no better gift to give. And then I love what the uh, author of the article says, magical, even life-changing things can happen when you choose to enter into conversation. Magical, even life-changing things can happen when you choose to enter into conversation. But the converse of that is equally true. Magical and life-changing things will not happen if you do not enter into conversation. And part of the reason this aspect is so important to Lewis is remember way back to Mythopoeia and that whole part about the power of speech, that the power of speech is a mark of what it means to be made in the image of God, to be a sub-creator, and to call things forth out of your friends. And part of the the issue in our culture is that we are not very good at any of that, or at least I'm not. Y'all may be really great at that. but part of the problem, as I said a moment ago, is that our friendships don't incorporate truth. I was reading another book concurrently with some of this that's totally different, but it struck me that it hit on the same chord. There's a, an essayist named Adam Gopnik, I don't know if any of you are familiar with him, He writes for uh, The New Yorker. And he decided that he was sick and tired of Manhattan, which shows good judgment on his part. Um, And he decided to take his wife and young child and move to Paris. And so they moved to Paris, and he wrote from Paris, uh, and he was a very fine cultural anthropologist of looking at differences through kind of an anthropological framework. And he said that, and he happened to be fluent in French, which is very useful if you're going to live in Paris. But one of the things he was talking about was how he felt like he had landed in an alternative universe. Now, a lot of people feel that way when they go to Paris, but um, what he was talking about is he had landed in an alternative universe in terms of friendship, because he said in the United States, with his guy friends, that 90% of what they talked about was sports. Well, if you are close friends with any French people, especially French men, Sports are just not a thing. You may, you may hear about, like, the French soccer team, and you see people in the streets, but those are mostly not French people. Most of them are immigrants. It's um, part of the French ethos to not be interested in sports. College sports barely exist in France. Professional sports don't exist. So he said, all of a sudden, I found myself sitting at bars with other guys having absolutely nothing to talk about and then he said it made me realize that something very strange has happened in the past hundred years because he said a hundred years ago America was much more like France in that regard and he said part of what has happened is that America has taken sports and celebrities and that is what 90% of conversation tends to revolve around. And there's a whole screw tape letter that fits into that beautifully, but we're not gonna really go there. Um, But I would commend to you the idea of thinking about how do you begin to incorporate that idea of seeing the same truth into your friendships. And we're gonna, next class, one of the things we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about Given all of this that we've been talking about, what does that mean about how we might wanna to try to live? So we're gonna have some more kind of practical suggestions based out of Lewis's work next time. But just some questions to think about um, as we wrap up tonight. Is my view of friendship more like that of our culture or more like Lewis's theology of friendship drawn from scripture? How much time do I spend nurturing my friendships? What is the nature of real friendship? How are my friends influencing me? How am I influencing them? What task or calling lies ahead of me that demands a community of support? How invested am I in nurturing, encouraging, and calling out the gifts in my friends. And as you think about those, those are big questions. Those are not things that are easy to answer off the top of your head. But I would commend to you taking the time to actually think about those and maybe even write down some answers. Because part of the reason this is so unbelievably important is if you go back earlier when we were talking, the first class we talked about Lewis and Tolkien's friendship, remember, both of them said, that the major works that they are known for would never have occurred without the other one. So imagine if Lewis and Tolkien had been stuck behind iPhone screens at Oxford and had never become friends. Lewis would never have converted to Christianity. We would never have all of those books from mere Christianity right through Narnia that resulted from that. Tolkien would never have written The Lord of the Rings. We wouldn't have those great movies that I love. Um, All of those things, that one friendship exploded in fruit and that could be something that God is planning and wanting to do in one of your friendships if you would only listen or if I would only listen. There's much that we have to learn about this and Uh, going way back to our very first class about why Lewis matters so much today, I think this topic is one of the key areas where we have a blind spot as church, capital C church, not St. Philip's, but Christianity, American Christianity as a whole. And if we can begin to recover a biblical view of this, it could literally change the world. So with that, let me say, yes? Uh, I'm thinking about I was last year about um, I can't I don't, I don't have my mom with me to look it up but um, you know he who predestined me called me, etc. Um, that um, that we might be the firstborn among many mm-hmm. brethren, mm-hmm. and how Tolkien was the firstborn, and then C. S. Lewis, and then among so many brethren, just from those two people. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's an amazing thing. And you see that was, that's Jesus' model. You know, you see Jesus calling people to him, deeply investing in three, majorly investing in 12, somewhat investing in a group of 70, and through that, all of us, every Christian who has ever lived, came to faith. So it's a lot to think about, lots of challenges. So uh, let me close this in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, we confess to you that this idea of living out friendship in the way that your word describes is a challenge. Lord, we confess that we have fallen short of the command that you have given us. But Lord, I pray that you would not cause that to have us feel guilty or discouraged, but that instead we would be so motivated by the wonder and beauty of what your vision for friendship is that we would be energized to try to live into that through the help and guidance of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I thank you for each person here this evening. I pray that you would help each of us to hear which part of this is important in our lives right now, that you would speak to us through your word and Holy Spirit, that we might be drawn to you and conform to your image, that you might be lifted up and glorified. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm-hmm. <laughs>